My name's Dustin Zahn, and this is Trainwrecks. My guest this week is Anthony Parasoli. For older fans, Anthony's story starts in New York. He grew up going to parties, working at clubs. Uh, he also worked at the highly credible record shop Halcyon, and he used to run around with that New York crew of producers that managed to fuse the techno and house sounds together. Uh, you know, some of them you might know as Joey Anderson, Fred P., uh, Just Ed, DJ Q, and uh, LeVon Vincent. Around 2008, he started a label with LeVon called Deconstruct, and basically every record on that label has went on to become a pretty um, sought-after release. They're always fetching really high prices on Discogs, and uh, yeah, timeless music. Um, the label was kind of quiet for a while. I don't know that it was really dormant, but it came back recently with a record from Anthony himself called Wildlife. He'll talk about that on the show. Uh, for newer fans, they might know him better from uh, touring a bit more extensively in Europe recently, thanks to joining the Oscarton roster. Um, and he also released a couple records for the label as well. Um... If one residency wasn't enough, he has two at two of the biggest clubs out there. Uh, he holds the residency at Output in New York and additionally a, a residency at Berghain here in Berlin. Um, I started hanging out with Anthony around three or four years ago, if not a little longer, through some mutual friends. And, you know, how it goes, usually you end up meeting people at dinner or bar or something like that for a couple of drinks and... We've just stayed in contact, and we've been good friends ever since. Uh, I've caught him actually multiple times doing marathon sets. In fact, I don't think I've ever seen him play a short set, ironically. Um, but yeah, I've seen him play house. I've seen him play techno. Uh, he can do it all, and uh, I can tell you he has what it takes. So uh, if you get a chance to see him, definitely check it out. Oh, yeah, and one more quick thing. Um I got to talk about myself again. Uh, as you guys know, I don't do any sponsors for the show. I don't ask for any money. I don't beg for reviews or anything. I'm not worried about any of that. But uh, the way I can take care of the show and have a little fun with shit like this is to uh, keep the old music career going. And this week I got a couple things to mention. I have a podcast on Soundwall's new episode um they're a site based out of italy so head over to their site to check that out it's also mirrored on my soundcloud so you can see it there um and another thing is i have a new ep out this week called ascension that's available on my label enemy and you can purchase that through record shops and uh only through Bandcamp. so just google it and i'm sure you'll find it so yeah if you like free stuff, check out the podcast. If you don't mind spending a little money, send it my way. I'd appreciate it. Enjoy the interview. You ready? All right. It's your show. Start it up. Yeah, just getting you warm. Welcome to the show. Uh, let's let's get the record straight. One of the first things that people ask is how do you how do you properly say your last name? That's a good question. It's uh, Anthony Parasoli. Parasoli. There you go. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah, and I asked a couple people, all right, well, I asked the internet for questions, and that was one of them that came up a few times, so we got it out of the way. Yeah, we got it out of the way. It's a good one to start with. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you did your due diligence. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, let's go back in your history about a, a bit. Um, you know, a lot of the uh, people that are kind of newly introduced to you or your sound in like the last let's say couple years are more familiar with you through like Marcel Detman records or Oscar and Burkine but you kind of as far as I know you, you, your origins are more with like the New York guys like Fred P uh, Just Ed Q LeVon Vincent is that correct yep yeah and I mean so that that's kind of like your original crew and they're still doing their thing like underground house and all that kind of stuff um but like well he was doing a little bit more on the techno side of things and so was fred so was LeBron. yeah true but i think i guess q is more closely related to the techno realm levon a bit as well but the other guys it's still a bit more mellow in my opinion 
you know. Fred so. has a techno alias. Oh yeah. Yeah, anomaly. Okay, didn't know that. I have to check that out. And the record's a killer. And nice. then you know he's done stuff on my label, his own label that are mm-hmm. hard, that, that are heavy. Fred's a Fred's a unique artist, man. He could do anything well. Nice. You know. Yeah, I mean th- those guys. There's there's always like a certain um, sort of class or quality to the music that they put out. You know what I mean? Whether yeah. it's gonna be like really. I don't want to say loungy deep house because that makes it sound devalued or something, but you know, very like mellow, chilled out stuff, or whether it's kind of like twisted, um, darker shit. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I, I know exactly what you mean. I mean, like, let's say for Fred, you know, he he comes from like this blaze background sort of, mm-hmm. and he ties it together with like that hip hop sound. So his early productions had that really gritty eight bit feel to it, mm-hmm. but really lush with the pads. You know, and that became his signature sound. But all those records sound great on the dance floor, man. You know, and yeah. there might, like there might be headphone music, you know, and you could walk around with his old albums on, you know, and like just do your daily routine, like your laundry. Mm-hmm. But when you play them out, they, they sound huge, you know. Yeah, big time. And I mean, that's, I actually came across Levon's sound before those guys, to be honest. But, you know, he was even one of those, and still to this day, where it's like when you break down each of the samples or sounds used, it's pretty like almost like sample dusty grooves, almost cheap, simple, dry sounding things. But on a system, it just pounds, Yeah, you know, and uh, yeah, I think that's a certain character that and like maybe I have to really think think about it before I say it, but I feel like when it comes to other New York producers, those are kind of some of the, the only crew that really gets that really raw, gritty shit going on right now. Some of the other guys are still doing great stuff, but it's a bit more polished and yeah, I mean, standard. When we were coming up, figure like 05, 06, 07, in that, that time frame when we were like, yeah, everyone had their own direction and we were all DJing or doing parties or like I was a buyer at Halcyon, so was Levon. Um, in that time, though, in New York, you had guys like Louis Vega, Vega Records, Mr. V, and that stuff was highly produced, or like the Joe Classell era. Yeah. At, at its peak, that was like done in like massive studios. That music can't be produced today because who has access to a real studio? You yeah. know? And, um, you know, they were done with like real instruments and like, you know, like orchestras almost to a point yeah you have to hire on a lot of help to get those parts cause yeah studio musicians lay the horn or some shit you know so you know in that time frame and then that also that sound also dominated the distributions so like when we got our distribution deal with downtown and we presented uh the me first we shopped the music around and we got the same idea from pretty much all the labels was like the stuff's too raw it's not finished, it's not polished enough, like the term you used. And like, that's the kind of feedback we got back. And we were like, fuck it. You know, we went up putting this shit out ourselves. But to get it out was not easy, man, because like, in New York, downtown Watts, Syntax, Mm -hmm. they were still around, but no one wanted to pick up a new label. And downtown was kind of hesitant, and they were the ones that to do it, because they already had UQ. Mm -hmm. And Ed presented it to them, and I think they started with with Q's uh, label first, the very first release, and then they eventually graduated to Fred, and then me and Levon with Deconstruct. And so, was it Strength that you were talking about? Was the first one? That was, I think, yeah. At first, it was UQ. Okay. And then I think then it was Strength, which is Q's label. Yeah. The very first one, I think, was Be Who You Want, and that was raw as hell, man. And I think like Marcel and Ben, everybody was playing it. Yeah. And then Fred piggybacked with a, a CD and then me and Levon dropped Deconstruct and Novel Sound kind of like simultaneously. Yeah, that's that's the next thing I was going to ask about is uh, you started um, you started Deconstruct with Levon and that was like what year? 2008? Something like that? Yeah, something like that. I I mean the, the tracks, we had it like in 06. Okay. And it was just like, I don't know when you started your label but like it was a foreign idea to start a label back then. Now it's like you know, ten years later, everybody has a label. It's yeah. a totally different world. Back then, though, it wasn't just you know, it wasn't like so like oh, you have two thousand dollars, let's start a record label. Yeah, 
you know it was really it was a big risk and it was a really foreign idea to you know start when everything was you know huge labels the 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 entire industry was dominated by ma- not majors, not RCA, but I mean like major label like Cocoon or Objectivity or yeah. you know Local Dice's labels. Big labels at the time. Yeah, every every label was a big label at the time, you know. And to say like you know when we started, man, th- in the infancy, that was not normal no, practice. Definitely not. You know, I mean like Enemy is my second label. I started that in two thousand four. Prior to that, I had uh, this label called Abiotic, which did seven releases. That was started in 2001 or two. And at that point, um, we didn't even have any dreams of trying to become a big label, like you said, because they just seemed larger than life and it wasn't realistic. But I also knew that none of them were going to take my records at the time. Yeah. And I never really gave a shit. I just wanted to have music out for a few of my friends. And uh, I mean, eventually I got both of those things, fortunately. But. Um, yeah, it is a it's a tough concept at the time. And then even like just going home to talk to the family for dinner and going to the bar and talking about starting a record label, like what? What the hell are you talking about? You yeah, know? I mean it's like I said, it's like a completely foreign idea back then. So you know, to do it, you you know, it just seems so out of the realm of possibility because if you put it in context, like minus or back then in New York, you had like Vega Records. All the record labels had like offices and like. These were it was like real businesses. Yeah, and you know, I mean, I think Rhythmic was on Wall Street, was it not? Yeah, yeah, crazy. I mean, you know, Strictly Rhythm, all of them. They were just, you know, downtown one six one was on Hudson Street. One six one was their address. Okay, and then they eventually moved to three hundred one, which is all that was down the block from the Paradise Garage on King Street, and that was like the hub of all these places. Like you had Watts. I don't know if you heard about Watts. Yeah, yeah. It was I, a I was, huge distribution. Yeah, I, I did the record shop back then and yeah. had labels and stuff. So, so like, they had, they were, it was a really big distribution back then. And Watts was on Watch Street. Mm-hmm. So it's like, this is like unheard of, you know, to, yeah. to, to be an upstart. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so it was a completely different animal back then. Yeah. You know, you have... Um, you have these big labels that, or even the distribution companies, and they just kind of, I think these days, if you want to start a label, the distributor is way more willing to talk to you than they were back then. Yeah, definitely. I mean, now anybody can start a label. I mean, that's, and that's a fact, because look at, you have, I mean, I don't want to get into a whole crying about, can't get a record out right now, but it's kind of, you know, part of what we're talking about right now you have two situations happening currently in 2016 you have upstarts you know with with their matrix 001 yeah and then you have the majors repressing all their catalogs for freaking record store day so with the queue now you might have been priority before in the past like in 2010 but now with 001s and then the majors it's taken like five months to get a record out it's it's nearly impossible yeah, I mean the some of the cues that people tell me about they like they said five six months wait. I'm pretty lucky at the moment, but a lot of people. Uh, the last one, the deconstruct. I'm <clears throat> no, sorry, the uh, Dietrich record on my label, the corner. Man, that took like I, I set the the masters and the cut in like end of August, early September, and it just came out. It's crazy. It's crazy, man. You know, and um, the other part of it is is. It almost makes you just say, well, screw it. I'll put it out just digitally. But then, you know, I think the moment that you decide to go with just being a digital label, it's like people almost like uh, take away some of the credit or something for the music, whether it's amazing or not. I don't necessarily agree with that, but that's kind of a sad reality, too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I always had this concept and theory. To be a, a a real record label, if you're digital, you didn't really exist. And my thing is, is you didn't have to be vinyl. Mm-hmm. If the industry kept moving and evolving, let's say records didn't exist anymore and it went the way of the dinosaur, like C, like CDs did, but there was a new format. I always felt that there had to be a tangibility and you had to physically hold whatever the product was, yeah. and then the late your label existed. And that's always been my personal theory. And that's why I, I also not saying that. 
Richie Houghton feels the same way, but I think that's also why Minus still does records to this day, you know? I, I Well, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, whether it's Richie or whomever, this, in this case, let's bring up Richie, the guy is still really interested in art, and I think he can still appreciate a physical product, too, and yeah. coming from that generation, you know, like, uh, I still go record shopping every week, and these days I just rip the vinyl and and bring the USB sticks and shit, yeah. uh, which I want to talk about later. But, um, I, I, yeah, I still like to hold something. I like the packaging because the, I feel like it puts a whole kind of, um, it rounds out the, the experience, you know what I mean? Yeah, totally. And not everybody can put out records, and not everybody needs to. Like some of these tracks that I hear, even on promos I was checking today, I'm like, this doesn't need to come out on vinyl. It's totally cool to play for a little bit, but there, you don't need to cut this to vinyl. But yeah. that's all opinionated, isn't it? So Yeah. I mean, like, you know, it's just, it's you know, it, people want to have records out, bottom line, you know, and if you have a little bit of money, it can, it can happen. There's just no other way to put it. But, like, when we started the label back in the day, LeVon had an old label, and we never expected Deconstruct <laughs> to pop, you know? Yeah. So, like, we did, like, a really small run, but he had an old label called more music and never sold it was just like you know just sitting there in the plant and the plant's a friend of ours and you know a lot of a lot of records are made you know with some recycled with, yeah. with, with virgin so what we did was we smashed the old catalog and that became deconstruct number one on the first first batch nice yeah. Now, um, I mean, I've always used uh, virgin vinyl, but some people say that, like, if you use the recycled stuff, it doesn't give you the same quality, sound quality. I don't know if that argument stands or not, but let's argue that the recycled stuff does degradate the quality a bit. Do you think that maybe add to the deconstruct sound at all, like, gives it a certain grittiness or something? I mean, like, being friends with the people that run the, the plant, talking to them, they say there's no such thing as a virgin label, record. Really? Yeah, they said that every plant uses a, it's always a mix. It's okay, like, so it's, it's it's snake oil that they're telling you basically. Yeah, like there's always like you know there's like a, a balance. So you need like however percentage, and you know with the virgin, and it creates like basically a new a new palette. You know, and it sounds really nice. So to me, the records, you know, this wasn't like um, a situation like tracks records, you yeah. know, where they just all recycled, sounding like poop. Mm-hmm. You know, they're only like a hundred grams. So, you know, um, with deconstruct, then you started that with Levon. Um, I'm sure you guys were like friends for a while. Obviously, at that point, did you both just decide like we got this idea for these kind of more stripped down, not really brutal tracks, but darker? Let's do it. Or, I mean, what what was the reasoning behind starting it? Yeah. So, super simple. Uh, Levon had some stuff. I liked the I liked some of the music. And my concept was, you know, in the 90s when you would buy records, uh, like the old Strictly Rhythm records, let's say, per mm-hmm. se, it was big room dance floor tracks, right? Yeah. And then they would always have, like, you know, a whole A side and then, like, some drum beats. And when we did Deconstruct, that was my my idea, was, like, full-on big room dance floor tracks made for nightclubs, not nothing too experimental or... So that's, yeah. that's where Novel Sounds came from because that became his more, like, personal musical musical side you know yeah. and and more experimental stuff whereas deconstruct is just full on and that was the, always the concept from the door you know and that's why i know why it became a house label because the biggest artist was ed mm-hmm. and then ed uh being the mouthpiece you know he was pushing his sound and 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 was you know backing everybody was fully behind the music that we were making but it got put into like you know here's a deep house thing but those records aren't deep house by yeah. no means they're, they're full on dance floor tracks you know big room that, I mean that's what they were made for like Invisible Bit Slap or or uh, uh, was it Air Siren yeah with the uh, no Air Raid was on Ovum okay what was the one with the siren then on Deconstruct Solemn Days that was it yeah I mean there's so many good ones on yeah. there so and then I mean the label took a Took a pause for a minute, and it came back with your record last year, Wildlife. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Was it just because you were both busy going on your own tangents? or? Yeah, I mean, it was a few things with that. Uh, we did we did the the, uh, the double pack, mm-hmm. the DJQ record, and then when Levon did the fabric, 
that kind of like slowed the, the label down for a bit because that was a lot of work that went into that. That was yeah. all original work. I don't know if you remember. I remember. And then, you know, we were all involved in the process because that's all our own music. So that's automatically slowed us down. And then the Fabric Mix came out and then Joey's uh, tracks on that Fabric Mix yeah. came out on that. I remember that, Earth yeah, Calls and all Earth that Calls, stuff. Right, and that was the next Deconstruct. And then there was a pause, but Deconstruct was never really dormant. We were still repressing the catalog yeah, in that time that's frame. That's true. So, like, you know, even though people were like, oh, the label shut down, it never shut down. Like, we were still repressing one, two, you know, whatever, like, whatever we felt like, you know. And then I, I made I made the B side um, in the stars in like 2010. Okay. And I always wanted to put that out on Deconstruct, but I always wanted the A side to be, I had an idea in my mind, but I never nailed it properly. I wanted to do like an old New York wild, like wild pitch record. Mm-hmm. And that's where wildlife comes from. So okay. I, I made like a modern version of like a wild pitch record, and that was my idea behind wildlife. Nice, yeah. I mean, that 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 wildlife track, the main track, it's just this really hypnotic. I mean, it's very linear and it's it's very subtle in the changes, but until it gets to the break, obviously. Yeah. But it's something that it has a really good. It keeps attention perfectly. You know what I mean? And I think Thank that's you. something that. Uh, Obviously, you have to understand as a DJ, which we'll get into in a little bit, like playing longer sets and like knowing how to do the dramatics and all that stuff. So um, before we move on to all that, you have started another new label in the past couple of years, though, called The Corner. Yep. You want to talk about that a bit? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So right around 2010, uh, I kind of got a little like dormant because my life was taking different paths. Yep. And because my life was going in different di- directions, I was kind of trying to maybe uh, not find not finding myself in music. That's not the right word. But it was more like I was not motivated. I was I was being really uh, crushed by work, you know. And I I, I kind of got like a, a new position in in Con Edison, which is the power company in New York. They they supply all the gas, steam, and and electric. And I went from like being like in one position to like a position that demanded more time. And by that, it was reflecting in how much time I could put into music. And it was kind of pissing me off because I've always done music since like, I was always involved in some sort of uh, context. Like if it was a p- promoter, I was promoting in the 90s or yeah. I was working in a nightclub or I was a bar back or I was working a door. I've done every job there is in, in many big nightclubs in New York. And then, you know, I was always working a real job and I was, you know, DJing and producing. But I came to a point right around 2010 where my career was taken away from my passion. Yeah. And because of that, it, it, it made the corner because I, I had like an epiphany, like this can't be like this. This is not what life's about, you know? And I was like, I can't live to work. And then, totally. uh, yeah. And then that's when, you know, I was going through some like, break up with my ex-girlfriend blah 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 typical story Mm -hmm. yeah and i was just like sitting on the couch i was watching some i was doing some music stuff and watching uh like goodfellas or something like that like mob week but i had i had the uh the tv on mute because i was doing like promo shit and when you watch those movies even though they're kind of brutal they're really visually stunning yeah you know like casino or goodfellas or godfather you know they're all like visually shot phenomenally yeah and i just had like this epiphany of like you know implement this like street you know aesthetic with because i used to back in the day help 10d which is a clothing line with uh like a like an aesthetic so like i wanted to implement streetwear aesthetic which is like supreme and all that yeah with streetwise visions you know like and that's what we did. And early on, it was really like, you know, real pictures with this like, you know, Futura kind of writing. And, yeah. and that was the early stages. And then obviously I've, me and my, my uh, designer have grown. And, you know, now that it's the, evolved the since then. Yeah. yeah, it's evolved. And, you know, I've, I have a lot of concepts and we've been implementing them throughout the process. And I'm really, visually, I love the way the corner looks, you know, I'm, I'm more yeah, than happy. Yeah, I mean, the... The nice thing about it is that it has 
you know, a lot of techno labels kind of have this very typical black and white. That's just still water, by the way. Black and white, doom and gloom kind of look to it. Or like it's very like, okay, that looks like a techno record. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And the nice thing about the corner is that it kind of does its own thing. It kind of leans more towards like, I don't know what you want to call it, the urban side of things or more, you know what I mean? Like cityscapes or, but not in a futuristic sort of way, just like a very now contemporary, maybe street art. Maybe it's something kind of brutal. Who knows? Yeah, totally. I mean like even like when I did the more brutal stuff, like the dead bodies and things like that on the cover, there was still like a little bit of a playful um, attempt on, on, on those pictures and that was always the concept was like to always have like this streetwear kind of look and yeah man like i always wanted to lay the whole label out and then do like almost like a lookbook mm-hmm. you know and that was always like something that i always wanted to get around to, to doing and i never i never did it because it's you know this it, it takes forever just to get a record out so imagine Dude, trying to do a <laughs> have these grandiose plans of like doing books and stuff like it's never gonna happen <laughs> Dude, like i have dreams for days about things i want to do with my label and then the next day comes and i'm you know i gotta do like taxes or something yeah you know what i mean so. and then you gotta go on the road and you gotta do this and you get a dj and it's like you know i'm just a one-man show and and my buddy helps me with the design but it's it's not you know it's not a simple process when you're just one person trying to do all this stuff definitely so um you started the corner and that obviously that label is as far as i can remember completely techno more or less there's not really any house maybe house influences but not house tracks on there at all um but like i said you did come from kind of a background with like the uq guys which they're i know they're not uh just deep house or house but uh what kind of was the inclination that it's like, fuck it, we're going to go full throttle in the techno direction for that? Well, I mean, like, I just think that I never veered, though, away from those guys because number one is DJQ, and then we did a hip-hop track on there. Mm-hmm. And then uh, number two was me and Phil. Number three was, I think it was Fred. <clears throat> and the Fred Fred P record is like, it's heavy, man. You know, Splitting Particles is a heavy record. yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's just like I think I I wanted to show that these guys can do other things, and they they do do other things, you know. And I wanted to give that platform of being open to you know to do these things. So I'm, you know, I I don't think we've ever veered. I never veered away from the crew. You know? No, I hear you. Yeah, you're yeah. still sticking with it, even though uh, what we're gonna go into next is things have really picked up in Europe for you in the last three years roughly something like that i mean you've been coming over for a while but like now it's a yeah. all the time sort of thing uh how many years ago did john oscott uh it's been three years three years now yeah wow I'm, okay I'm on, I'm on my third year yeah so yeah you're part of their agency you're now reg- regular resident at Berghain. yeah um always tuning around with uh, marcel detman i guess marcel and you are close and that's kind of like how you ended up becoming part of the world here in Berlin and whatnot. And yeah. do you want to kind yeah. of go into a little bit of detail on that? Yeah, absolutely. So you, you, you brought up a bunch of different things. So when you, you said about, about three years ago, it kind of came full on. And what happened was when I was working my old job at Con Edison, I used to come over not as frequent, but I was coming over like, you know, once a month or something like that, but just for a weekend and then go back and go do work. Somewhere along the, the line, I was tired, man. Like, it was hard because I was still doing 40, 48 hour work weeks. And my, my old job was super demanding. I mean, yeah. working into, I'm walking into like literally buildings that are collapsing sometimes, you yeah. know, and like full on catastrophes. And like, you have to be pretty sharp. And I was getting tired. And, and like, sometimes I was like, I remember I'll come on tour, do some shows, play like fabric or something like that, go home and like falling asleep in the truck. And this was like, now, you know, I had like this epiphany, like, man, this is getting dangerous, not just for myself, but for the jobs that I'm doing, you know? And um, I put it out to a few booking agencies that I needed to move because at the time I was with uh, more like um, a housier one because my friend owned a, an agency called uh, Canopy and they have like the Martinez brothers and mm-hmm. Q and 
people like this. But then they did also had some more abstract artists like Kyle Hall at the time, I think Emin Gunn. And I said, you know, I can't go full on and leave my job and and stay here with this agency. So I put it out to a few agencies and Oscar was interested. We had a meeting and, and it happened. And then what happened was because I, I put it out there and I signed on, <laughs> the biggest irony happened. A building blew up in New York City. And when the building blew up, my plane was landing. I had to go to work. And the next day I went to work and uh, they were like, no one could leave 16 hour days, six, six hours a week. Can't leave until further notice. Jesus. And when, and when Con Ed does that, the last time that happened was Hurricane Sandy. Uh, that, that lasted for months. Like My the, God. Yeah, that was not like a weak thing. And when they did that, on the spot, I called up my boss. I went to Harlem, and then, uh, you know, I met them on the site. And I was like, "Listen, here's my paperwork. I'm, I'm giving you my two weeks, and I'm gonna go." That's it. Do, yeah, I was like, I can't because I like Oscar already started booking tours, and I was like, "It's you know, I can't cancel stuff. You know, I'm never, I'm gonna lose my 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 steam." So that was the end, and that's that's how it happened. Sometimes, you know, a lot of people they ask me like. Uh, you know, how do I make it or blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I really, to be honest, everybody that I've met that is finally like making a living off of DJing or, well, nobody's making a living off of producing anymore, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Off doing this music shit. Um, they've all had a similar story where it's like either they get fired or let go or they quit. And it's just kind of like, it's that turning point where it's like, you gotta you gotta swim or you're gonna sink you know what i mean and yeah man it seems like that's it like you people don't give themselves enough credit like if you need to survive you will and i think when you have like a cushy job you're like well maybe next year will be my year but i think there's know. two sides of this i think there's some people who just want to be an artist not an artist but they want to be a dj and they and they never held a real job and mm -hmm. they're struggling the whole time because they don't put the work in on their artistic side. Well, yeah, I mean, there's definitely variables like that. Yeah, there's a lot of variables like that. And then you have the flip side where there's actually really talented people. They do a lot of work, but then they also hold a real job. And that real job is holding them back from taking that next step. Big time. You know, and that's, you have the two sides of the coin, you know, there's two variables to that, you know? Yeah, I mean, you can't generalize too much. Some people yeah. got kids, some people got health issues, uh, you know, but child I, support, whatever. Yeah, but like, I, real life. I, I definitely think you can't go all in without leaving the job behind. You have it's to, just, yeah. It's just impossible. I agree. Know? I mean, it's like, the, Seth Troxler said this best in his Red Bull, you know, he's, He's a goofy guy, and he says some some yeah, jokes. But he's a smart guy. He's a smart guy, and I remember this man like it was yesterday. He did a Red Bull Music Academy thing, and it's like on YouTube. I think it was like '09 or '010. And he says the only way you can do music full on is if you cut the cord. You can't have a backup plan. Backup plan. He's like, if you have like the second job waiting, or you have like, mm -hmm. he's like, you have to cut all nets and be full on. And I, I, you know, it, it penetrated. And I, I actually agree with what he yeah. said with that, you know? I agree 100%. That is, if you want to do it full time. Yeah, full on. Else. If you just want to like, maybe travel a weekend or two a month or something, you can keep the job and totally make it happen. But uh, yeah, like a full hobby. time requires full time, man. That's all there is to it. Yeah, it's, and it's really, I mean, to be honest, there's not enough hours in a day for the amount of hours that you have to, if you're doing this correctly and you're producing records, you're DJing, you're running your label, you know, what every facet of what this industry requires for you to be successful today, there's not enough hours in a day, man. No, definitely not. I mean, you know, I, I've been telling people about this lately. It's like some days you get up and you kind of, Actually, there, there's two things I'm going to go into with this. Like, I, being in my early 30s and single and living on my own in Berlin with no family around, I should technically have all the time in the world. I should be cranking shit out like nothing. But I'm not. And it's <laughs> like, part part of it is, like, I could prioritize better and get it handled because there's just, I, there's a lot of, I could clean up in my life to make that work. But, yeah, there's always going to be something. And you have more roles these days. Like, you're your own 
web designer or your own PR guy. And like, there's not, you're not just either making music or DJ and you got to do a bunch of different shit now. And then once you do become a DJ that's in demand, you got to work with your agent. Like one promoter gets pissed off if you play for the other promoter. And you know, like it's always something that you're arguing all day about. Yeah. To juggle in that. I mean, the emails are just never ending. Yeah. And I know I've, it sounds like, you know, oh, it's such a tough, tough career. You got to answer some emails, but it's like, you know, and shit's time sensitive and, you know, it's a lot to handle, man. It's a lot to juggle. The money for some people might be there, but, you know, it's tough to, like, hire someone to, you know, run that stuff. Yeah, and the reality is a lot of people that finally start doing okay in DJing, they're still not rich or loaded, so you can't really afford extra help to do that stuff. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, so it's, it's kind of shitty. But then at the same time, uh, I got to bring up people like Jeff Mills and Robert Hood, Mm -hmm. who have us both beaten age. Uh, I know Robert Hood's got a family and a full-time career. Jeff, I don't think he has kids or not. Uh, I'm not sure, but I know he's like, he's Jeff fucking Mills, you know, so fill in the blanks. But those guys are more prolific than ever. They're putting out so much music. Like just today before the show, I got this new floor plan promo in the mail. And they're talking about two singles there and then an album in the summer. And then, you know, it's already been announced that he's got two singles and an album for the Robert Hood project on Deck Mantle. Yeah. It's like, okay, so you got six big releases in one year from a guy that's got kids, a family, and a full-time career. And I'm like, what's my excuse? You know what I'm saying? It's insane. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really unbelievable. And, like, for me, I kind of, like, write my weeks out. You know, and coming from like, you know, a background of like actually holding a real career, you know, I did take some elements from like that, you know, from working and, and holding something like that. And, you know, I, I plan my work, you know, and like there's one thing I, I don't like to do and, and that's like not going to the gym and like trying to stay young, you know, and, and healthy. So that's my where I like to start my days and then like. You know, I schedule for myself studio time. I'm like, all right, I got to go to, you know, go to studio and, and write some music. And then, you know, I make sure that I, I plan for, you know, my DJ sets. And, you know, and I write my weeks out because otherwise. It's a good idea, man. There's no way to, to you know, like, oh, yeah, there's, ne there's always tomorrow or, you know, you always put something off. So I, I, I kind of systematically go about my, my weeks, you know, and I plan it. Yeah. I mean, you, you, everybody's got a different approach obviously but you really got to find the way to um find what works for you like for me i mean i write notes down my desk is littered with notes of yeah. or lists of shit to do and um i mean it kind of works but it kind of doesn't but eventually you find find your way like today i told you i might have to go in the studio and then as we just talked about five minutes ago all these other things come up and you're like, okay, I guess I don't get to be creative today. I got other stuff I got to get done first. Yeah. So um, that's definitely part of it. There's a gentle balance, man, you know, without a doubt. Time. And then there's another thing, though, like when it comes to like writing music, I have like a thing, though, I, that, that I believe in. I don't believe in writing too much because I feel like when you write a lot, a lot, you kind of fall into this trap of using techniques over and over over and over like you know like these triple hats go here or da 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 da, da and I, I don't want to fall into that you know it's definitely a, I mean it, that happens we yeah. see it happen all the time on records and for some at some points it can be good it can kind of help you define your sound mm -hmm. other times it's like okay the production's getting a bit lazy or predictable predictable's the word yeah um, you know sometimes if you're a really prolific producer at the moment you're just like, okay, cool, it's another record by so-and-so, but then you're like, it's not as special as the other stuff just because he's banged out three records in yeah. the last six months anyway. or You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. Like, what, what I'll do is, like, if I buy some new gear, I'll use the gear, I'll make some sounds, but I don't record nothing, you know, and I just, you know, I just write or, you know, play the instruments and I play and learn, it, and learn them inside and out. And then when I feel creative or, like, you know, what I do is, like, on the plane, I'm listening to music and I could be listening to like, I don't know, I've been listening to like a lot of rap again and a lot of hip hop and I can listen to like a clam casino record, just like an instrumental and I'd be like, damn, that's dope. And I'll just take a note, you know, and I'll like, I like that. Mm -hmm. And then like when I'm, I have enough notes and I'm inspired, I'll just write some own, you know, some new music and then, you know, I have some fresh ideas. And that's what I, that's the way I, my creative process has been recently. And it's worked well. I've, I've awesome. gotten good results. 
yeah i mean is that a i mean obviously you have to as we were saying you got to change things up to keep it interesting but your creative process is that how it's been only recently or is that like how it's kind of always been no it's been the last year because i'm i don't know about you but like i listen to no techno a house when i'm not uh mm -hmm. djing or listening to like preparing for sets so of like i go through like stages like i've been listening to like a lot of jazz over the last two years i mean tons of it nonstop. a lot of a lot of hip-hop mm -hmm. but in my personal opinion jazz and hip-hop in the production sense are not far away from hip from from house or techno so like listening to it you know you get some fresh ideas from other genres you know yeah and, and it keeps me keeps me fresh it keeps me you know having ideas and I kind of go back to some things that I might like and you know you learn things because you know I wouldn't mind playing piano like Robert Glasper even though I can't that'll, totally, never, that'll yeah. never happen <laughs> you and me both man no I hear you I mean um you know th there's definitely a lot of similarities and I think that's why especially when you look at more records like um I don't know some of the Detroit guys uh, or like Theo Parrish, Kyle Hall, something like that. They kind of have that sort of background too, yeah. and it's pretty evident in the in the production in those records. So absolutely, I mean, like to me, Theo is like the Miles Davis of house music. Yeah, for real. Like I, I haven't, I, I haven't paid close attention lately, admittedly. But I, I don't even know if he's what he's up to, or if he's released much. But well, he did an album last year that was really nice. Okay, American History or something like that. I can't remember what it's called exactly. But the album that he did that I really like, I just love it. It's the, it's, you, you have a period in someone's career where something might have clicked or they yeah. might have learned something or they might have grown as, a, as an artist. And for him, he was doing all this sample-based stuff forever and ever, right? Yeah. Like the, those Dusty Records, you know, one hit, Akai, you know, sampled stuff. But when he did that Purple Gatefold album. Okay. This on sound signature, I can't think of the name of it. But, uh, I'm not familiar with it. But anyway, that was the album where you seen like, wow, he took that next step, you know. And you can hear him playing, you know, the keyboards and hiring singers and you know doing all kinds of creative found sound stuff. Finally pushing it, yeah, pushing it, man. And it was like you know the breaking point for him. And uh, yeah, man, I just think he's a beast and super inspiring, you know. Or like, remember that single Space Station? Yeah, that's like a perfect. That was that time frame. Okay, Space Station came out. That album came out, and that was a time frame where I, something clicked for him. Yeah, I mean, um, that that's kind of the beauty. Like, there's some. I'm I'm seeing that a lot with producers these days, where you can tell they're on the verge of something clicking, but it doesn't quite happen, and you want to keep your you know, keep your ear to the ground for them. Yeah, and you're just kind of sitting there waiting for it to click, and then when it does, you're just like finally this is happening you know what i mean so yeah, totally man um you know like someday my music will click Let's see <laughs> i actually think you're making great music i love oh, the new, si new singles fantastic thank you i appreciate it oh march 15th <laughs> <laughs> stores everywhere worldwide worldwide <laughs> yeah um you got any music coming out well you just had wildlife but anything else coming uh, uh well the, the dietrich record on the corner just came out um that's available worldwide everywhere a fine store near you as far as my own productions uh i don't have anything i put out a lot of music last year yeah you know and, and, and you're playing a lot this year too yeah yeah so uh let's let's go into that a bit like uh just gigging gig after gig in europe now and you know we've been out to dinner and hung out at the bar a couple times and like we always go into talking about the similarities and differences between the two continents that being the states and europe and, uh, you know, primarily when you're playing out in Europe, it's mostly techno. Yeah. And I'm sure it's sprinkling in a bit of house or whatever. But, for example, we were talking one night, we were saying, like, uh, in the States, it's much easier to get away with kind of mixing the two together or, like, creating a certain dynamic. Whereas here, it's not that easy to get away with. Nah. Years ago, I had an epiphany about that. Where like you know I I thought it was you know the same worldwide like yeah. I didn't realize that techno DJs are techno DJs and house DJs are house DJs and these worlds don't really collide and the rooms don't really understand each other per se as as advanced as the music is here 
and kind of readily accessible is also how close-minded the the rooms are oh big time man you know and it's a bizarre thing for me to, to really comprehend early on you know I, I couldn't grasp this and uh that's when i had to make a decision you know and also when you play house music in europe i'm just thinking about this clearly i want to make sure you know i, I can say this right sure. when you play house music in europe it's usually in a small room yeah whereas like if you go to hear like Classel or Danny Crivet or somebody in New York City, that's in a room the size of Bergheim. And then the context of the music is heard in a way different sound environment. And like when you play that stuff in a room, you know, that's a little bit smaller, you know, it's just, it's a totally different vibe and the crowds are different. And I think when you're, when you're DJing, um, when I realized years ago that I couldn't do both really, you know, it changed my, my, my thought process and like how the crowds re send and receive this, this music. And uh, as much as you want to do both, especially like in Bergheim, you know, you want to play house or you want to play all kinds of stuff. You know, you kind of, you know, the, the room is not really open like you think it is. Yeah. You know, but in America, it's, you know, wide open and you can play. You could play anything. You could play hip hop if you wanted to. It doesn't I, matter. I think American DJs in general are used to having to really fight to get the crowd's attention and also keep it. Yeah. Whereas in Europe, it's I mean, it's not a guaranteed or a given, but in the states, like you kind of got to be on your feet. You got to be changing up, having some dynamic. And uh, you know, here, the DJs are much more like laid back and relaxed about things. Given this is all general circumstances here, mm -hmm. or generalizing, but yeah, so I, I think we both kind of come from this background where it's like you you almost feel like you're inclined to step it up or or throw a curveball here or there just to keep it going. Yeah, I mean, like you know, you play these long sets, for instance. When you play the long sets, I never imagined playing a long set nine hours and then you just end with one track at the end. Like this is the curveball. Like to me, that doesn't make sense to me. You know, I don't, I can't, I don't, I don't comprehend that. You know, it's like there should be hours of blocks of different sounds and textures. You know, from the, you know, from a palette. Like, like if you're a, if you're a painter, you know, you, you should be painting with multiple colors, not just black the entire time. Yeah, I mean, I've I've noticed that by seeing some of your closing sets that you also try to go all over the place. Uh, some sets are deeper, some are pretty much more intense. Then you have blocks like you've even played like pop music, for example. Do you yeah. want to go into that? Yeah, sure. I mean, like, you know, like I said, back home, this stuff is easy. I think it's more uh, digestible for the audience because they, you know, they're around it. So they hear, let's say, Crivet every month or whoever play, you know, heavier sets. And then they get into like disco or whatever. And in my experiences, they re it really opens your mind when you hear you know some like really amazing pop record like a Madonna track let's say you know and it's a track that I've played in Bergheim many times is uh, Justify My Love back in the day you would hear that like in like Junior would drop that in, in Twilo or Sound Factory that record is massive in a nightclub and I wanted you know and that was one of the first ones I played in Bergheim and, and kind of like you know they understood it but I don't think like they were like you know really into it you know and it took time to like really understand, and and I did like full blocks of it because I wanted to make the, this audience kind of like appreciate hearing other stuff than just like you know a banging four four track. And it might be coming out of a a heavy set, yeah. But it's to almost like break and suspend the audience for a little bit from being pounded for so many hours. I agree, you know. And the other part of it is it's like. I can imagine for, let's say, a lot of techno fanatics, especially if they, you know, were lucky enough to get into Bergheim or some shit like that, and they, they go in for the techno onslaught, and then all of a sudden, 5 a.m. comes around, and they hear Madonna come on, they're like, what the fuck? You know, like, because yeah, that, yeah. that's a pretty extreme thing, but that's also one of those make-it-or-break-it moments where either they're, A, going to have the epiphany, like you said, and they're going to be like, I never expected something like this would work, or, or B, um... They're just not going to be into it. But if they are, then it's like that's probably a moment they're not going to forget. You know yeah. what I'm saying? And uh, these days, I think w those people that take risks, I got to give them props for that alone, you know? Yeah, I think like 
AB told me a story that they were all having lunch somewhere here. And they, this is when I did the corner night. When I did the corner night, I think you were you were actually there. I was there, yeah. Yeah. You know, you had different colors, you know, artists that were, they're, they're a little more artistic in the way they DJ than the average techno artist. Yeah. So when I went, when I, I did the opening and the closing, so like I went on, I think after Levon, and Levon was after Silent Servant, and I knew that these guys are really abstract. So I was like, I'm gonna come in, I'm gonna play heavier, and then I'm gonna break it up and then move the music around, which I did. Yeah. And AB told, you know, was at lunch, and he was he was talking to this girl, and the girl was like, man, I was there, and you know, Anthony fucking played Frank Sinatra. <laughs> At like 5 a.m. or 6 a.m., you know? And he's like, yeah, but if you played another techno record, would you be talking about it? <laughs> you <know>? Exactly. <laughs> he's like, that might be something you, you're going to remember in 20 years, you know? And not, you know, you're not going to remember the linear set that's just, you know, straight ahead the whole time. Totally. You know, and I think there's a thing everybody's going to have... Uh I don't care if you want to call it a guilty pleasure or you just admit to it, but there's tracks when you grow up in the rave days and you're just like, man, I fucking hate that track. I always hated it every time it came on. But now, 15, 20 years later, when you hear it, you're like, that track's a jam because either you've come to terms with it, like you're finally like, okay, I give in, I like it, or you realize, okay, it was awesome back then and I was just being a little shit. or You know what I mean? Yeah, and totally. like, We all have those kind of tracks, you know? Yeah, and you know, don't get me wrong. I've adjusted over time. When, because you know, I, I understand how the audience is and now being here so often and playing so often, you know, so I've made some slight adjustments, but I want the audience to understand and not force me to have to do like one way, like this is the way you play techno, it's got to be like this, blah blah blah. No, I want you know, yeah. there's a give and take, I'll give you a little, you give me a little, you know, and and like you know, with the message boards and the, and the internet today, it's making it difficult for an artist to to fully be an artist because if you try some real risky shit, it's gonna go on the board and, and it might not come totally. out positively. Yeah, I mean the perception is everything. Whether it's you engineer that perception or not, you know yeah. what I mean. And it's like, for example, all these DJs that post the videos where it's like you know, if you go by according to Facebook videos. There's actually no kick drums and techno sets. It's all just the breakdowns yeah. and people going crazy. So that's one way of perception. But like, let's say you drop a track and it's not Madonna, but just let's say it's a drum and bass track mm -hmm. uh, and it goes off, then you get that. But if it doesn't go off and they put, like, look at how he fucked up this mix with the drum and bass track, you got that on you forever. And people are like, I don't know if we should book this guy. Yeah. Which we should verify for the record. You're probably not going to go to Italy this weekend and play Madonna, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Those are extreme circumstances we're talking about here. But yeah, I mean, like, you know, I have played, I've been known to play Prince, though, in many, many places all over the world. Yeah, but Prince works all over the world, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, yeah, so let's go into, you know, for, for people who are looking forward to seeing you or thinking about seeing you or promoters that have been kind of curious about booking you, like, what would you kind of describe the sets that you're more most excited about right now? Don't just say everything, because we all want to play everything. But like, is there like lately, like, man, I'm into the hard shit or the deep stuff, or what? What are you feeling at the yeah, moment? I mean, like, as far as like, in my opinion, I think <laughs> I like searching for a lot of music, right? Mm -hmm. But I, I think there's great techno coming out. I'm not one of these guys that are like, only the good, only the old stuff is good. Yeah, you know, and like the grumpy old man, like. I think there's tons of great techno coming out. You know, I get amazing music in the promos. I go to Hard Wax or, you know, Clone or something, and I, I find tons of amazing records that are totally inspiring, you know, or, you know, even like labels like your record, I think is fantastic. That The Ascend record, I wish I made it. Yeah, thank you. You know, it's like a dope drum track that I, is kind of like in my wheelhouse, you know, and I find myself gravitating towards it. Or, you know, there's some stuff that I really like and, I really love techno right right now that how it's being made. There's, I'm not fully in love with the modular movement. Mm -hmm. I think it's abrasive and that stuff I'm not fully into personally. Obviously, that it has its moments. It has you know? its moments, you know. Um, I think there's different kinds of abrasive, and I, I think there's like there's, there's a, a certain harsh abrasive that I'm not really feeling. But overall, man, like I think Trust makes great records, and there's tons of people where I'm just like, yeah. Dope, a new record by this person, or 
you know, and, and it, it's making my sets become wider on a techno palette because I think there's people that maybe not have been writing as much in the past, like Fixma, who's back, you know, writing again. And yeah. I think it's great, man. You know, and I think it's opening up my, my bag because I'm not just doing, you know, my drummy stuff. It's letting me play more EBM-ish or more this and, you know, and, and like Trust is a Tallow influence is coming out when I'm playing because I, I like his records. You can't really play an Italo record in your techno set, you know, but you can play his. Sure. You know, because it pounds. Yeah, it's got the elements of it. It still keeps that, uh, I don't know what you want to call it, aggression or whatever, yeah, you know. The, the movement. The, yeah, exactly, the energy. So that's cool. I mean, yeah, I don't know. I think for me personally, a lot of people are always saying like, oh, I'm so bored with everything coming out with techno right now. And I think the reason a lot of people say that is like, because the quality is so high that um, even like the average is still damn good at the moment. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So it's like it's it, it is hard to stand out when everything kicks so much ass at the moment. And other people are like, well, where are you finding these records? And I'm thinking it's listen, I get that if, if you only search on Bport, then it might seem like there's only one techno sound or something like that. But there's yeah. a a wealth of spots out there to grab stuff and i mean even if you gotta like hit up these facebook groups and like snag track ids or some shit just start somewhere and then like go down the rabbit hole you can find so much great yeah, stuff I mean, you know i i, I kind of like have like a theory on on why there's so much good music coming out in the techno world because house and techno house and techno never was so far apart ever yeah. Until like now, like now it's the furthest it's ever been. Yeah, I agree. And in the past, you you know, like a disc, like a, one of the biggest disco records is like Go Bang, right? Dinosaur L. Yep. The BPM on that's 133 BPMs. Now, is it really that fast? Yeah, it's that fast. Wow. And if and there's tons of old Giorgio Marauder records, they're all that fast. Maybe even faster, right? If you look at house music today, I, I guess because of the ketamine movement and all this, it's progressively got slower, yeah. slower, slower. So if you play a strictly rhythm record or a masses at work record that was written in the nineties, which was 130 BPMs, next to one of these new tracks that are coming out today, I don't even know who the artist would be. You know, I don't want to like put yeah. anybody out. That track's like 110, 115. Oh, it's it's ridiculous. So then you sound like Rob Friggin Hood if you're playing house music, opposite of that. So now what happens is I think those producers that was making house music then, or not then, but like would have been making house music then, is now making techno now. Yeah. See what I'm saying? No, and, I, and I, I totally hear you. And I think that's why techno, there's so much good techno right now. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing that I'm finding is, is like, as the BPMs go up, it, 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 it's different both for both techno and house. Like with techno, things can get a little bit more mechanical. Mm -hmm. Whereas before, um, you know, when it's slower, obviously you got more space to go within the grooves. That's the same with house music. But some of my favorite house records were also pretty banged because, like you said, they were in the 130s somewhere and it kind of gets a blood pumping. You know what I mean? So, um, you know, when you, when you start looking at all the house records that come out these days, the reason I think that house is so shitty at the moment is because everybody's trying so hard to be so sexy and stuff and like it's not really full-on rager party music it's just more like suave whereas techno is the exact opposite direction it's just like let's rip each other's heads off and i'm like what what happened to just the middle going out <laughs> and raging having a good time at the party you know yeah. so i don't know i mean and it looks like the bpms are only going to go faster too i i hope not too much but i don't mind I'm not infatuated with the with the BPMs, right? So for me, I've played sets at like 140-something, and I'll play sets in like 129, right, mm -hmm. for a techno set. But I, I think what I don't like is playing really fast with this really harsh abrasive because then it becomes like, it's like brutalization. It's too much, It's yeah. too much, man. It's really heavy. I've, I've noticed that happening quite a bit lately too especially in berlin at some places you go out and it's just like over the top apocalyptic uh it's like that borderline like the schwann stuff that was going around yeah. uh 15 years ago or something it, it's just too much and yeah i mean like let's say gabba which is that as an example mm -hmm. right i would almost prefer gabba set 
because at least it's more open and there's more you know it's more spatial and, yeah you know, it's, it's like, not as dense it's not as dense it's not as full you know and i think that's what's bothering me it's like that really full environment that's being the atmosphere that's being created it's creating an intensity like it's like aggro almost big time i mean i i don't know like i you know i mean some people do it really well like i really like you know people like perk and when when they do what they do it's a really well done thing and it's also almost like shorter sets so it's like this like in and out dynamic impactful kind of thing mm -hmm. and then you got people who will do like eight hour sets where it's just even more intense than that and it's like all right get the fuck out man i yeah. can't handle it anymore you know but you know it's like, just me for instance like adam you know he comes from that background you know the industrial background definitely but if you go listen to adam dj like a four-hour set let's say Berghain or trezor when he does it it's way deeper and it's way slower oh, yeah. it's like 127 you know and it's, the music is more open and and when you push those bpms because you want to play like you know you want to be techno those elements become just too dense and it's it, it, it's a very it's a, the word that i like to use is abrasive it's very abrasive on the ears man big time you know when you pick up the, that that speed and and you're t you're adding all those elements the the high frequency range and the mid high frequency really stands out man you know it, yeah that's the other thing people forget is it doesn't matter if you're in a big nightclub or even it's actually even worse, like, let's say, in a small bar because the sound system is an engineer and it's more harsh on the ears. Everything that you're playing is going to be amplified. So if you have a record that just sounds kind of mellow or chill at home, that record's going to sound hard as hell on a bigger system. Yeah. So now imagine the stuff that, like, maybe if you're listening right now and you're making music that's just brutally hard, imagine that being, like, you know, 20 times louder out at a club and that guy's probably sitting there thinking like, oh, yeah, fuck yeah, that sounds awesome. But like, dude, after a minute and a half of that, people are going to kind of lose their shit unless you're like, you're at a really hardcore party. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. I mean, like, like you, we both thrown out Perk and Adam, right? Mm -hmm. They have a brand new record out. If you're playing and you're DJing like the way these people are playing right now and it's just really relentless, that record is less effective than if you're playing... A deeper set, not deeper is not the right word, but let's say you're pushing it and you're playing like Rob Hood, Jeff Mill, whatever, and you're moving the music around and yeah. you know you're mixing, you know three decks, just all this bullshit, you know, and you're murdering it. When you drop a track like that, it becomes even more effective. Big time, it's all about dynamic. Numb. Yeah, you know what I mean. Not, you're not numb to the sound. You're not. You haven't been pounded with with you know an industrial set mm -hmm. the entire time. You know, there's tracks that I will personally, as a DJ, I know that they're boring. Actually, I don't want they're like they're not boring in the sense that like uh, they're shit tracks, but just there's less going on, and it's like okay, this maybe isn't the right track for peak time, but it is because if you know how to play it right, you can kind of wind it down and build this tension. So then that next track is all that much more. It, it snaps better. You know what I mean? And like totally, uh, there's something to be said for it. And I think if you know people who are trying to get gigs or people who are DJs like you really got to pay attention to that dynamic and just doing a whole set of uh, more droney tracks is going to be dull but if you throw one or two in the mix before a big track it's going to blow up big as shit and you're going to be like okay that's fucking awesome so yeah, yeah. give it a shot yeah I mean you know the the problem is the audience thinks that it's got to be four four consistently, you mm -hmm. know, and that's that's a challenge that, you know, the, the dance floor opposes on DJs. That's that's really what it and it's been that to. way for forever, really, as far as dance music goes. You think so? Well, I mean, in in our realm, obviously not with drum and bass, but I remember like back in two thousand three four when people like Axiom and Rico and all those guys first started coming on the scene. Yeah. I was into all that, like, whatever you want to call it, broken beat, uh, two-stepping kind of shit from Spain. I was all over that stuff. Mm -hmm. And it was really a challenge to kind of throw some of those records in, or Olga and Joseph, or Hard Cell. And, like, uh, you could throw in one or two of those once in a while, but even then, like, it was easy to kind of lose people. You couldn't do, like, a half hour of that shit, right. you know what I mean? And I, I still don't know if you can now, but once in a while, I think people are a little bit more open to it at the moment. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think, but that I think that's a nice break to the floor. You know, I always believe in like almost resetting the dance floor in the middle yeah. of the sets, and I always got good effects from doing a two-step track. And I also I think there's tons of great versions of that coming out still. You know? Yeah, I agree. You know, 
like the, like the Tommy Four Seven put out one that was fantastic with an Oscar Malero remix, yeah, and fantastic, you know, bro- broken track or there's so much so much of it, you know, and uh, when Zach played at Bergheim over the weekend, when Devious One dropped that Tony Roar track, you know, it's more like an electroly thing. It was a great break. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I mean that's a thing. Like, and I've actually noticed that in Zach's set more recently. Actually, even the time before last when he played there, a lot of it was kind of more on the broken side of things, and uh, that's just something you don't hear much of these days. Yeah, you know? no, it's fantastic. You know, I would like to do it more. I should do it more, and I forget to sometimes. Yeah, you know, I have like a whole folder. <laughs> step and I, I sometimes i just forget to like go in it you know i just don't have the faith that i can pull it off sometimes so i don't but if i if i feel that i can pull it off then i will you know yeah i mean like for me i always break the floor but i usually i've i have a technique that i use i break it with beatless stuff you know with no kick drum at all yeah you know and and i've been doing that technique for a few years and i have certain tracks that i, I like my go to my go-to to change the color of the room and and like kind of you know relieve the tension and you know it usually works and 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 you know if i did it with a beat i just forget to do it that's all you know i i, I always forget to use the two-step stuff for some reason i don't know why yeah i mean well it's you know there's there's you know whether it's using two-step stuff there's always little tricks that you can do to change up the floor or whatever mm-hmm. or like reset it like you could start off with the broken beat thing like for example one thing that i still do and it was i started doing this with my live set you know 10 15 years ago by necessity i'd have to stop the music to like reset a couple of things and it wasn't long and at first, I was like, well, I could play a pad or something over. I was like, fuck it. Let's have an interlude, like yeah. a, a concert. And sometimes during DJ sets, like if I really wind it up and stuff, I'll like slowly not fade out the drum beat, but like bring it to an end where it's just kind of like silence. And people are like, well, what, what the fuck's going on? Is it over? And I'm just like, no, like it, they're so not used to having this like dramatic break. Like there's no music. Like they get fucking excited. And then when yeah. you slam something in again, People go crazy because nobody does that. Yeah, yeah. And it's all it is is stopping the music. You know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, you got to tell me. All right, that's it for this episode. We're going to catch up with Anthony again on part two, where we'll talk about the rest of it later on. That'll be coming up in the next week or so. Thanks.